This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. As of this taping, I'm 56 years old, and for almost all of those years, I've been kind of an expert at self-abuse, self-harm. I used to be a cutter back in the day and didn't understand why. I just knew that the pain of of a knife was, was a relief compared to the pain of the inside. I was suicidal for a brief moment back in 1987 uh, when things got far overwhelming, Uh, but I didn't really ever lose the longing for being dead. Uh, That's something that comes, that spills back up still today when things are really bad. And only in recent years did I actually begin to learn about things like PTSD therapy through the VA through the global war on terror, through Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom and all the combat experience we've had over the past 20 years, starting after 9-11, that I begin to understand that there's a possibility that some of the beliefs and behaviors that some of us carry are related to things we were taught through pain, taught through trauma. So I began a couple of years ago to walk a path through the VA, through uh, military channels of looking at some of my beliefs. You know, we talk in Impact Actual about eliminating your self-limiting beliefs and behaviors. Well, this is why the founder has dealt with a lot of the things that we talk to you about. In fact, almost everything. If you if you learn a lesson from us, it's probably a lesson from me, a painful lesson. So I got into PTSD therapy and began exploring and digging the hard things that I didn't want to talk about. And I learned that a lot of us with combat PTSD actually come from a base of earlier PTSD, whether childhood abuse or other events or, uh, or, or relationship serious uh, trauma. And I won't talk much more about that in this intro. I want to just get the, get the topic on the table because... It is possible, if you're dealing with it right now, whether you're military or not military, the thing that I came away with, have come away with, is that it's not about the military. Trauma is not about being a combat veteran. Trauma is about being a human being who experienced something. It's a little bit distorted these days because there is such an emphasis on combat PTSD. And that is the segue that opens up my conversation. I want to bring on my guest today, who I'll, I'll give very little introduction, but a, a longtime friend and a man that I've watched from afar and admired as he's gone through this path of surviving and thriving with PTSD. Uh, Steve Rosen and I met at a conference for speakers years ago. Uh, Suzanne Evans was our teacher. Yes. Larry, big Larry, <laughs> big bald Larry. Yes. What is Larry's last name? Wingett. Larry Wingett. A lot of folks know him on the TV. Yes. Western fellow. And so Steve and I were two clients who learned about uh, about speaking is one of our developmental options. Then we went our own ways and followed each other on social. And now we're here. Steve, brother, welcome aboard. Hey, it is awesome to be here, Rob. Thank you so much for uh, bringing me on here and allowing me to share my story for the first time that's not in a uh, a therapy session. So I'm not sitting in a doctor's office or, uh, you know, working on, you know, some type of 
you know, whether it was my uh, disability rating or whatever through the VA, you know, I've always been interrogated, but I've never been interviewed. You know, I learned through my recovery program, through my alcoholism, my, my addiction over the past 30 plus years that uh, we're only as sick as our secrets. We don't always know how to tell the secrets, though. That's the thing. That's why we need professional help in many cases and why there's no shame in taking professional help. Well, you mentioned, you know, on the intro that a lot of our adult trauma, some of it is tied to childhood trauma. And when I was a kid, I don't know about you, but I was told you can't say anything about this. And so not only was I subconsciously knowing that I was shameful and dark, but I was also told, hey, this is shameful and dark. If you tell anybody, there's going to be even you think it's bad now. Wait till you see the consequences of sharing this. And it's like looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, if I would have just snitched on who was doing whatever they were doing, the consequences would have been nothing compared to what they were doing to me. Yes. Is there a way of holding me down? And they and they were sick with their own disease. But yeah, it's uh, it's powerful. That is the secret to the secret right there is the fact that these are magnified over the years. We internalize things like, like I said, self-abuse. I will call myself a stupid piece of shit still spontaneously if I drop the milk. I catch myself doing it now because I've been dealing with these things for years, because I've been looking at who Rob really is and what really makes up Rob. Uh, I, I, I found recently I, dro- I dropped a very expensive latte right after, right after I didn't have a sip of it, a very expensive latte, didn't have a sip, dropped it, blunk right on the ground. And I said, what's done is done. Wow. That was a, such a breakthrough for me. What's done is done. You can't change it. I couldn't change it. The latte is all over the ground. I could lick it up if I wanted to, but there was no chance to not have dropped that thing. And that is, a. A breakthrough uh, for me, uh, this this whole self self talk thing. The self talk perpetually holds us down, exactly as you were describing. Someone who's victimizing, consciously or unconsciously, harming a young person, harming a child. That person, their their strongest weapon is saying, "Don't talk about this because it'll hurt your mommy or your daddy or your parent or or if it is the mommy or the daddy, it'll hurt me. You don't want me to be hurt." The person who's hit, hurting another uh, a defenseless person who has helped. A defenseless person who is sick and hurting that person perpetuates the suffering, perpetuates the trauma by teaching the person who's receiving it to do it to themselves. You nailed it. You know, and that's my, you know, earlier years in a nutshell, you know, was uh, definitely being on the uh, receiving end of somebody who was extremely mentally ill and had some serious issues. And uh, I was the focal point of those. So, you know, and that was my my intro to trauma, as you might say. And then, unsurprisingly, to those who understand the dynamic, you chose a career of chaos. Yes, I went into the military, <laughs> joined the Army, you know, and I was actually going to join the Navy, of course, because of Top Gun. And uh, I wanted to go be cool and, you know, be like Tom Cruise in the Navy Whites. And uh, I was a high school dropout by that point. So my life was already starting to come unraveled. I couldn't even finish high school. And so no branch would take me. I called the Navy thinking, yeah, they, you know, love to have me. No. And uh, eventually I was able to get my foot in the door through the uh, National Guard. And so that's how I did. The Army National Guard was kind enough to take a high school dropout. And then after I completed my training, I came back, got my GED and then went active duty. So that's how I was able to get in without, you know, even being qualified in the beginning. And I was told that we, uh, that even though, I mean, walking into the National Guard or the Army or the Navy is not chaotic in the moment because unless there's a war going on, it's just like, okay, there's a, there's a career path. But somehow we know 
somehow we know this is the place I can have all the chaos. I can have all the crazy. I can have all the uncertainty, all the un insecurity. I can all the things that are familiar to me and therefore comfortable, not good, but comfortable. You know, uh, and, and looking back, it seemed like it was such a secure choice. And look, and, and in some ways it was. It was a great choice because as chaotic as the army was, it also gave me the structure that I absolutely needed to get me out of the stuff I was doing. So, you know, I wasn't exactly, you know, the most well-behaved teen. So it was great to get me out of there. But yeah, that chaos factor, you know, I craved it. <laughs> Give me more. <laughs> yeah. I don't want stability. Stability is boring as hell. And so... I just want to, there's, there's so many things that I'm looking forward to hearing from you about, you know, specifically, like the reason, for one thing, I want to tell you, I'm deeply grateful that you would come on the show and talk about your life because people need to hear this. Not the Steve Rosen show, not like, hey, tell, like a biography, but, but about the experiences, the fundamental elements of your life and the, and the elements of this path, how we get from surviving to thriving with PTSD. It's so important for people to hear this because, again, it's not just about combat vets. It's just that's the that's the flavor of the month, combat yeah. vets and trauma. You know, we people on the street here, PTSD, they're like, oh, my gosh, where did you serve? I didn't serve. I was fucking raped when I was three. Not my not my story, but, you know, that's right. one example. I didn't serve. I was in a catastrophic car crash when I was 15 and my family was killed all around me. Uh, and so that's, again, I want to beat that drum. Trauma is human. Dealing with trauma is human. But we have a, a featured focus right now because of the, tw the two decades of combat veterans and so much trauma and so much PTSD that came out of that. A lot. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm glad that you and I are doing this and that other vets are doing this because hopefully we've got a head start on what happened with Vietnam. Because, you know, this is a long, drawn out war with a lot of veterans who are now kind of shaking their heads, looking around going, okay, what, what does this all mean? And it's a, I don't need to tell you or any other vet how, how challenging it can be to be part of something where the end result wasn't like our predecessors where they came home to a parade and boom, it's over. We, we beat XYZ forces. They're done. And you didn't have to hear from them for 10, 15 years. I mean, we, we never did achieve the objective. Well, we, I guess you could say we're achieving the objective because since 9-11, we haven't had another 9-11, so right. we have been able to keep the bad guys over there doing stuff over there. But at the end of the day, there was no, and there still is no real, you know, crisp or clear, you know, determining, we won or we lost. It's still ongoing, and it's just, wow. Yeah, the closest thing we had to a victory parade was an, an unfortunate and cringy uh, declaration of mission accomplished on a battleship early yeah. on in the war. Yeah. Which was very premature <laughs> because it very. wasn't. <laughs> I, was, you know, I was actually, if I'm not mistaken, that was around, you know, early or early to mid 2003. And uh, yeah, I was in Iraq then and uh, the mission was not accomplished. We're like, man, maybe he needs to come check out what we see here. What you know, is so, he saying? <laughs> what yeah, accomplishment. Uh, you know. We all walked into that 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 global war, the regional war, with Taliban being prominent, and we left it with Taliban ruling the country, uh, where they are, and yeah. ISIS coming out of a non-existent Al Qaeda back in two thousand and you know, like uh, say May of two thousand one, when I deployed with my platoon, we were we were we watched nine eleven happen live with our Arab hosts, who were, when we were teaching Arab SEALs how to kill terrorists. Uh, at their base in the Middle East, and uh, we 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 knew who Al Qaeda were. 
we knew what a bin Laden was, but the com- the company didn't know. The country didn't know until 9-11 itself. And then the stories came up and it was everywhere. But we we had a very quiet Al-Qaeda uh, doing its thing. And then we had a very powerful ISIS when we come out of the wars. The global concept of ISIS and, and the global concept of Taliban is the, a national leader. So there's a lot of ambiguity for the vets to say, where exactly was my accomplishment? Why did I do all the suffering? Yeah. And, you know, I look back at, you know, we did a lot of uh, missions to where we uh, drove a lot, spent a lot of times on the road hauling stuff. And so I look back at all of the candy we gave to kids, all of the, you know, just the cool times we spent there, you know, whether it was, you know, you know, playing a game of risk out in the middle of the desert, you know, trying to, you know, get the game finished before a dust devil hits. It's like, you know, can we get, you know, two more rounds in before that dust devil, you know, three miles away comes through camp and just the silliness and the camaraderie, you know, so there was obviously some really good stuff, but around us, we knew this was not a good place. And, uh, obviously, you know, I was at camp Anaconda during, you know, 2003. So that was when, you know, the insurgency began and, you know, came out of, you know, places like Taji, Fallujah, all those areas that we were just driving around thinking, okay, these are, these are crappy locations. And we had, we had an idea things were getting bad, but when we first got there, it was like, okay, we won the war, but it's like, why are people still messing with us? Why in May did we take a casualty? We, we lost somebody in May. And so it really did, uh, you know, kind of hit hard as to how real and just, I just want to say dark and shadowy some places are in the world. At certain yeah. times, it's not like that it is always there. I mean, if you came to where I live, I live about, oh, three miles from a street called Battlefield. Now, I live in mm-hmm. Springfield, Missouri, but however... There was some pretty savage fighting going on here during the Civil War. So it's funny to think, I was thinking the other day that Battlefield Street is actually, it may sound cool now, but there were literally people fighting and dying and bleeding right where we stand. Yeah. It was a dark, scary place. But now, you know, there's parks and trees. So wherever combat happens doesn't make that place bad. It's just where it happens to be. So Iraq, to me, I look at it as just going through such a dark period and such just, you know, I, it's just so different over there, and you never forget how different it is. And, and and it is because it's so foreign to us, and not foreign to an Iraqi kid that grew up there for twenty years. He's like, okay, this is Iraq. This is my house. This is Balad, whatever, wherever he is. Yeah. Um, and so, it's about perspective again. Context, like we talk about in powerful peace, context is king. Context is everything. What's familiar to me is is scary to somebody else. You know, going to the grocery store. Look at all these options. I didn't know there was 10, 10 ways to buy rice, you know, or 20 ways to buy rice. And so, like you say, when we're in the combat, when it's in a combat or disputed zone, then it creates this automatic element of fear, automatic element of threat. There's a threat here that does not happen in my town in Northern Virginia. I don't have that same underlying current of, of threat. So I want to I want to talk today about your path to We've, we've touched on the past, the, the past that led to choosing the career that ends up in the chaos and the trauma. Your path to the trauma within the service and separately talk about your path out of the effects of trauma in your life. I want to make sure we get both of those things discussed. Without doing, we're not, we're not here to talk about war stories. You know, I don't want to tell the listeners today about friends who are dead. And I don't expect you to do the same thing. That's, you know, the worst thing we hear probably to you too, is that question. So you ever kill anybody? That, that, that question is just, uh, 
it's it's a it's war porn from a non a person who hasn't experienced it. Yep. It's not that's not something we talk about. It's like, yeah, I mean, some guys write books about how many people they killed, but they've got their reasons for that. I'm not sure what they are. So, so your path uh, up to and including this stuff, can you can you give us a sketch of what what led to the stuff within the service that you're you're struggling with today or working with today? What I'm working on now, um, we're, there was two significant, I'd, you know, there was two significant events that happened that were traumatizing. Uh, one was in combat. One was actually after combat. The one in combat was just, it was unfortunately just a very classic, well-executed ambush. They attacked the last vehicle, got the driver, unfortunately, and so... That was something we had to, you know, incorporate into our mission was, okay, this is dangerous. We could lose somebody. And so that right there was uh, incident number one. And it was a incident where we were all traumatized together. And we, after we did it, within two hours, we were sitting there in a circle in a tent, you know, late at night. And the chaplain was there having each one of us discuss how we felt at the moment. And it was just awkward and weird. And we were angry. We were tired. We just wanted to go to bed. And it's like, are you really pulling us through this crap? And so we did that. Two days later, they did it again. It's like, are you friggin' kidding me? We're going to do this again. And so, and we're all like, I don't know how to feel. And, and some people were upset, but it was just like, I don't feel anything. Is there something wrong with me? Because I was numb to it. Right. I just, I, I, you know, I just was so like, so that was number one. Number two, I came back in 03. And in 2008, I was in Chicago as a recruiter, and my family and I were driving. I was on duty. I had just dropped off a uh, army vehicle, turned it in, and I was heading back to my recruiting station. My family was giving me a ride, and we came upon a traffic accident, really, really severe. And I got out to be the hero. I was going to go out. And I was going to get out. And I was going to save lives, and I was going to, I was going to save the day. And what I got out and saw was just mind numbingly awful. And it, you know, I saw somebody losing their life at the scene and there was nothing I could do. And it was a sense of helplessness and fear that I've never experienced. And so I got out of the car and I walked upon the scene and unfortunately there was somebody there losing their life and it traumatized me instantly. I just felt a surge, uh, just horrible feelings. And I panicked and I didn't know what to do. And I kept my calm externally. But inside, I was a wreck, and I waited till cops got there. When they arrived, I got in my car, and I drove away, and I just burst into tears. And for the next six weeks or so, I would have crying fits and just was unbelievably attached to this. And the next day, I was so moved by the whole thing. I found out online what had happened, you know, that the man had been killed, and I got his identity and found out where he worked. And for whatever reason, I called his work. And I wanted to let somebody know that I was there. I don't know why. And within an hour, so the day after I met, you know, not met him, but was there when he passed away. His name was Bill. Um, his widow called me. And so less than 24 hours after learning that her husband had been killed, I'm speaking to the widow. And she found out somebody was there. And she knew I was in the Army and that I tried. And we talked. And it was a beautiful yet really painful conversation. I don't remember the details. I just remember knowing that I was supposed to be there. And 
I ended up going to the funeral. The funeral, the line was out the door. And I got there. I didn't even know what to do. And one of the family members recognized me. They took me to the front. And I got to meet his two adult daughters, um, his wife, um, officially, and some other family members. And so they knew that there was an army guy there who tried. And that gave them some idea of somebody cared. He didn't die alone. And I didn't, I didn't even say anything to him. I didn't know what to say. I was so traumatized and so just horrified. And that moment changed me because I realized at that point that uh, I was mortal. We're all mortal. And it scared me to my core uh, because one of my biggest fears is dying because it goes back to my childhood trauma, which was revolved around suicide attempts. So it's all about death. It's all about darkness and, and dying. And so here I am experiencing combat death, suicide death. Then I'm watching somebody die in a vehicle accident. And slowly, I just started to really become scared to live and decided that life is just too dangerous. And this is all unconscious, of course, you know, but I start slowing down my life and, you know, I stop flying because I'm terrified to fly. Um, I start taking through the VA um, a awful anti-anxiety medicine, which has got, which numbed me for six years. So I'm, you know, dulled and feeling just rotten. And so I start sliding and sliding and I couldn't figure it out because for several years after the trauma. I went out to Arizona. I retired from the army. I went out to Arizona and ran a business like nothing happened. And when you and I met, I was shifting from being a successful fitness instructor into being a professional speaker. And I was nothing but, you know, just fire and just energy and passion. And, and the only thing that could stop me was me. And I sure as heck did. Once both ends of the candle ran out, I just woke up and I couldn't do it anymore. I could not put another foot in front of the other when it came to doing anything professional. And so that's when I slipped into the madness of a few years of really dark PTSD stuff that, yeah, I'm, uh, if you want to talk about it, I, I'm more than happy to discuss what happened next, you know? Yeah, I'm really, I mean, what I'm hearing is just um, getting kind of a chill from realizing how different our experiences of trauma and post-trauma can be as well as the fundamental sameness because, you know, trauma is trauma for human beings. Again, it's not a combat thing or a childhood thing. It's a human thing that can happen however, whenever. And it's different for every person. Just like any, like I won't say this is mental illness. This is a different factor. It's not mental, It's not a physiological mental illness. Mental illness, including schizophrenia, which is something that I'm very familiar with from my own background and my youth and, and, and experience a lot of pain from, a lot of pain from uh, – schizophrenic uh, family member that's something that is dealt with or bipolar they're dealt with in cases with uh, behavior therapy and or medications but the trauma is something that is uh, it can be addressed because it isn't physiological it's not baked into the dna it's this thing that can be teased out like like i said if i drop the milk for example instead of saying you stupid son of a bitch on the inside um, I can say, oh, I got to put milk on my to-get list <laughs> on my on my planner. So it changes the dynamic drastically to say, just stop being negative to the self. It holds us back to be negative. But back to the idea about sameness and differentness, it's incredibly powerful that you're sharing so honestly about what your experience is. The, the fear of death is something you can talk about because you 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 know it. Mine is the exact opposite. Sometimes I fear living, that I'll, in my worst moments, 
I really don't want to be alive anymore. I think that's what cutting is. Cutting is a slow suicide. I also think my addiction was a slow suicide. Being drunk enough to kill people or kill myself, neither of which ever happened as far as I know, is, is a very self-destructive behavior. So we, we have different ways of manifesting it, but I don't know about you. I would, my experience has been that it was, has been so hard to acknowledge the issues because just like you said, guys were fighting it out in the civil war. They're fighting it out in Iraq with us and in other generations, the Vietnam generation you mentioned, they, they came home to being spit on in the worst yes. examples, being called horrible things after being traumatized in war. Now you're a baby killer on top of that. I was, I was told soon after I came back from Iraq, one trip, one deployment that a man walked up to me in borders, gives you an example of what time frame it was before they imploded. And he walked up behind me. Uh, I was in my camis, Navy SEAL shopping for, you know, I, <laughs> my vice. Since I don't drink, I got to have a vice. So I like to buy books. So I was looking at books and he walked up behind me and said, I'd be ashamed to wear that uniform. And I wow. turned around and it was a guy who, you know, if he had chosen to fight me, would have been making a very poor choice. <laughs> I can tell you that at a glance because I've had to size guys up all my life. And I said, well, it's a good thing you're not wearing it, isn't it? And he he kind of backed away like, oh, shit, I really, I fucked up with this guy. And and I wasn't threatening him, but I was just being very, very objective. But uh, But that hurt a little bit. And it shouldn't have. That's the funny thing. It shouldn't hurt. It's right. somebody else's opinion. It's not mine. You know, we don't need to modify our internal experience of life by somebody else's external expression. Uh, but I didn't get spit on. I wasn't called a baby killer. Right. And and a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma for men. I'll be specific here. Needless to say, there's a lot of women dealing with trauma about which they've never spoken. So obvious. You know, sexual violence is something that we do experience on the male side of the, of the team, but by no means is it in the same volume, the same scale as, you know, we, we hear women talking honestly about dealing with going home after being out with the girls or being out at a club. And, you know, you, she has to watch herself very carefully and approach in the car. And I don't, am I aware? Yes. I'm watching for a guy to jump out and point a gun at me. Absolutely. But but I'm not, I don't have to be aware of the same universe of, of threats that she does. She has an extra, extra layer of, of universe, of, uh, extra layer of threats. But uh, we were told, we, even in my generation, I joined in 85, we were told to shut up and don't talk about it. Shut up and take the pain, to quote Sergeant Barnes from Platoon. When, when the cherry boy is dying from an abdominal wound, he's screaming and yelling and he's going to give their position away. And Tom Berenger grabs his face and says, shut up and take the pain. That's what we as men have been told for, as far as I know, the history of men. And that leads to things like toxic masculinity, which we've talked about on the show before. And we'll probably do a whole show on it one day because I, I'll say, like I always caveat, masculinity is not toxic, ladies and gentlemen, or they yeah. and whoever. Masculinity is masculinity. Femininity is femininity. These are beautiful agnostic terms. Being too uh, aggressive and hostile, being too closed-mouthed, that gets toward toxic because it's not healthy. And when, when I was closed-mouthed and not talking about my pain, I was unhealthy. You know, I was afraid 
to talk about the pain when it goes around the, you know, the combat situation, because, you know, part of it was, well, there were guys who knew him better. There were guys, there were vehicles that were, you know, there was a couple of vehicles that were closer. I was six vehicles away. What about the guys who were two vehicles away? You know, I didn't hold his hand. Other people did. So there was all these, you know, comparisons and things. But guess what? We all got a broken leg that night and we all broke them a little bit differently, you know, as far as that goes. But like you said, it's something that can be healed and the trauma that happened that night can be healed. And when I started sharing my journey on Facebook, a couple people who were in the unit were like, Hey man, you can't, you know, you gotta, you know, cut that out. You can't be mm-hmm. saying that. And I'm like, why? Yes. I'm going to share just how scary it was. And yeah, if I, if my, you know, flashlight chases out some of your roaches, well, so be it. Maybe you need to talk about yours too. And so at first I was scared because of the hard asses in the unit that were like too tough. And I was like, you know what? Nobody came out of that unscathed. I don't care how badass you are. When you're going through what we went through, that is scary stuff and it changes you. And to come back and play the hard ass, I just thought the hard asses had something I didn't. Like, oh so man, I no, I don't want to be. And now that I look, you know, some of the hard asses, a lot of them have broken down and become much less, you know, tough, but some of them are still holding on. And it's like, Bro, I know you just just let the fuck go and chill out and let yourself heal. You know, you're holding up a whole bunch of lies and, and I've done it. And it's interesting. You brought up the fact that you were opposite where you didn't care if you died. I had a po- or you didn't want to you know live. I hit a point a couple of years ago where it flipped for me also. And instead of wanting to survive, I'm like, holy shit, I've got genetics that are probably going to make me live to 100. Plus, I can care myself. I'm fit. I'm screwed. I've got to live like, and so I had this idea come to my head. You know, it's like, you know, if I ever do a book or, you know, something, it's going to be called, I can't kill myself. So now what? And it's how I got through everything. It's like, because I'm not the type when it comes to that type of action, it's something that is not in my playbook. So having to face it was so terrifying because it's like, shit, I don't want to die, but I don't want to live. I'm scared to death of dying scared to death of living. So what in the hell am I going to do? And mm-hmm. that's, that's the scariest friggin' place I've ever been is when I couldn't live and I couldn't die. It's like a, a, a it's a, it's the ultimate dilemma. It's a, it's a, a helpless, a helplessness, which is yeah. funny because we're capable military men. We know we are. And superficially, just like all the hard ass you're talking about, we're all on the same plane there. We know we're tough, capable military men. That's a fact. But why do I feel like a helpless kitten? Why do I feel uh, afraid of of the world around me? Why why did I why did I almost run out of a whatever? I went to a, a department store with Amy some a couple of years ago, and we were looking for gifts for the girls. And uh, this other mommy with two other little girls was in the little girl section where I was waiting for them to pick out their little girl clothes for for my team. And uh, and this lady and her mom, her, these two girls, were kind of like doing that side shuffle thing, going down the aisle, picking out this dress and that dress, touching this, looking at this, talking about the other. And I, they were walking toward me and I was like, I'm out of here. I slid on down to another aisle. And then they came to that aisle and they're looking for little dresses and shorts and stuff. And they're creeping toward me. And I got really agitated, really, really angry. The anger is not legit. I mean, it's legitimate, but it's not the source feeling. The source feeling is fear. I was feeling fear because a uh, mommy and her little girls were crowding me. 
It was the ultimate crowd. I mean, I went out on Black Friday one time. Forget about it. <laughs> I, learned, I learned that that's a really bad choice for me to go to the Navy Exchange <laughs> on Black Friday with this stuff oh. we're talking about today. Don't be in a crowd of 300. I mean, a rock concert, I can totally overcome it. Just like I don't like heat, but I don't mind operating in the, in the desert, you know? Give me 150 degrees and I'm in full camis. I'm okay with it because it's operations. But here in Virginia, when it's 90 degrees and high humidity, I'm like, I don't want to put a suit on. I keep telling my kids, it's like this heat wave. I'm like, I don't know how I did it in Iraq. I mean, I had all this stuff on. It was 10 degrees hotter, 10% more humid. And I would, you know, and I didn't, you know, didn't have a thing to say in it about the heat. Well, I mean, I'm sure we complain, but not like now. And yeah, perspective is everything. And we were coming home one day. Uh, what would happen when, we, when I first moved here three years ago, that's when I completely just fell apart. And just even going a mile away from home, I would start panicking, get sweaty. And so I would be, my family would be like, hey, we're going to go shopping. We're going to go to the grocery store. And I'm like, I want to go. I need to get out of the house. It's been four weeks. You know, it's been a month and I haven't gone anywhere. So we'd get in the car and we'd drive about a mile. And I'd start saying, you know what? I don't think I want to do this. And they're like, really? And of course, that ticks me off because my family isn't, you know, coddling me and, you know, giving me just perfect love and just empathy and compassion. And yeah, I'm like, I want to turn around and go back. They're like, all right. So they turn around. There's a guy and there's a bicyclist and he's dressed in a little bicycle outfit, you know, like how the bicyclists do it. And he's in his own lane, not doing a thing to anybody. Mine was <laughs> own I rolled down my window and go, asshole! <laughs> and my kids look at me and I rolled the window. I'm like, told him, I told him. And they're like, what the hell was that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm just so angry. And it's like, they go, wow, dad. Yeah, we definitely need to get you home. And when's your next therapy session? Yeah. That was who I was at that point. And like you said, you know, you dropped milk the other night and was able to say, stick that on the list. I was somebody who would go out and I couldn't even get a mile from home without like trying to start a fight or just get angry with people. And just this, this anger and, and just hatred for just society and just everything around me in such a dark place. And it's like, shit, I can't even go out there and do anything. So yeah, it was, uh, it was rough there, especially when I first moved here, just trying to go out because I was forcing myself to go out and try to be, you know, this, this healthy, happy individual before I really knew even how, and I had any coping. So I didn't have coping mechanisms because, uh, I was still trying to get over the childhood stuff. I wasn't able to start working on the adult trauma until we cleared out a lot of that childhood trauma, which was me believing at my core that I was valuable and that I was worth healing. Because if I didn't believe I was valuable and worth it, none of it would stick. And then I had to say, okay, it may not feel like it, but life is worth it. I've got two awesome kids. I've got a wife. I've got this life that I literally created the life that I've wanted. I don't enjoy it. It's miserable right now, but damn it, something's going to change. And so things started changing. I continued working with my therapist. I got off of a really powerful anti-anxiety medicine, which helped my mind really start feeling again. I was numb, which made things hard. And that's when I didn't really care if I lived or died. Well, about, oh, two months ago, I started tapering off of a, that medicine and I started feeling myself wanting to live again. It's like, not just live, but exist and go out and do stuff and have fun. And so next thing you know, I'm in an amusement park. Then I'm at a movie theater. Then I'm, you know, 
doing some stealth camping in a little old downtown, you know, in the Ozarks of Missouri, you know, just, you know, you got a sketchy dude on a bicycle riding around looking for whatever trouble. And I'm hiding out in my car thinking, you know, I hope sketchy Freddie don't come and see me. This is thrilling. This is awesome. You know, and it's like, shit, I'm starting to live again. And that is brought back once again, just like when I was traumatized, I feel mortal again. And I feel like, oh my gosh, this could all be taken from me. And then there's this calm voice and it's like, you're damn right. So you better continue to enjoy it because one day it will. One day you're going to run out of whatever it is that you call this and your time's going to be up and there's nothing I can do. And so I'm working through this big existential crisis of I don't want to die, but I don't want to live forever. And I think that's kind of a, and now I'm realizing this is a cool place to be. This is it's OK to be excited about life and not want to die, but also the idea of living to be 200, God, I'd be bored to death. Oh, yes. 100 sounds great. And 80, anything over 80. And so now I'm like, because my grandparents both lived to be 99 and 100, which gave me this idea that, okay, I've got an extra 20 years on most folks. So I can kind of take it a little easier. That's no guarantee, Rob. I have no guarantees, you know. Yeah, the incidents happen, as you experienced catastrophically with Bill and Bill's family. He didn't, it didn't matter what his genetics were in that situation. It just happened. And it can happen for any of us. And I've looked at that, of course, you know, with my buddies that have died and people I've seen die for no good reason, it seemed. We had a girl one time at uh, Fab Marez, Ford Operating Base Marez, which is in Mosul, who went, ran into the, uh, this was not a friend of mine, but as I went there and did security assessments at the bases, all the names you, you named, Taji and Anaconda and years over there in that zone too. And a, a girl ran into the shelter like they were told to do when IDF or indirect fire came in, rockets and mortars. She did exactly what she was supposed to, ran out of the dining facility, the DFAC, ran into the shelter, and uh, a rocket hit the gravel at the end of the tube. These shelters are upside down used that look like they're, they're about 30, 30, 30 feet long, and people hide under them, about a four foot or five foot tall concrete shelter. But the ends are open like a tunnel. And uh, a rocket hit the outside of that. Uh, frag from the gravel became, you know, flying bullets. Uh, the one magic BB went right through her heart. And she was in the middle of the shelter where she was supposed to be. And now she's insta-dead, just plain dead. Uh, as my Arkansas cop buddy calls it, DRT, dead right there. She was alive. She was doing the right things. And she was dead. I saw other guys that, I, that should have died. A rocket landed in their hooch. And they... It didn't, it dudded. And one guy actually tripped over it trying to get out of the, out of the uh, hooch because they were hearing rockets hit elsewhere. So you can't tell when that number comes up. And this sounds almost cliche, you know, but you and I have lived it, lived around it, watched it and survived it. And I believe that death is the sweetener. It's like a, a sweetened, a healthy sugar to life. It sweetens life to know that, yeah, I don't have any guarantees. I'd like to have five more decades like you. I kind of plan for it, but if I have five minutes, what matters most is that I'm doing the best I can in this hour, the one I have. Yes. You know, I've learned that there are no destinations. It's all journey. And when I run out of journey, I'm not even going to know it. So even so death itself isn't even part of the journey. It's it's my you know, my conception was where it began. And, you know, when my heart stops the journey and, and it'll continue for others who remembered me. But man, I'm off. And so that you're right. It sweetens it. And it allows me now to have, you know, one of the things I've created in retirement is so much freedom. 
that it's crippling, that I'm so free and I have so many options that I'm scared to do anything. Like uh, I have this now SUV that I've converted into a little camper. So in the back, I can, you know, switch it out and I have a really nice little camper and I can go anywhere I want, anytime I want and sleep anywhere I want because it's just a car and I can pop up my, you know, window shades and nobody knows I'm in there. So I literally can go anywhere and guess where I go? Nowhere. Cause I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> so finally, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I finally went and said, I'm gonna go camp somewhere. And I drove up to this little town and I was scared. I'm like, man, what are you doing? You're, you're cuckoo. And I'm like, just get a hotel, just be normal, get a hotel. And I'm like, no, you're not normal. So I ended up, you know, sleeping in, like I said, sleeping in my car by choice when there's nice hotels around. And, but what that did is it let me know I'm alive. There was some danger. There was some risk. And I've played it so safe these last couple of years because I've been so safe. And I kind of got burned a little bit sometimes making choices because I made some bold choices. When I made the choice to become a professional speaker, it was bold. And I went way bigger than I intended. And well, I intended to go that big, but it was way bigger than I knew. And you saw how much I was trying to jump. And I was trying to jump all the way up the flight of stairs in one leap and kept smashing my face into the stairs and I couldn't figure it out. Well, eventually I smashed myself into, you know, laying in bed for two years. But what I'm seeing now is that the darkness is such a contrast to the light. And yes, I've seen and I experienced some serious darkness. And I, uh, I find a couple of dark philosophers quite, you know, helpful because they let me know that you can have a very fulfilling and happy life with darkness. And there's, but it, it contrasts this beautiful light that's also within me and that my life is not just traumatic moments. So there have been times where the opposite of hap- has happened. And I've been at parts of beautiful moments that are so touching and so powerful that they rewired me in a healthy way. So I've had moments where something beautiful happened and it, changed my life in an instant. So it's not just trauma that can change lives. It's, it's also sudden, very powerful things. And obviously it seems like trauma is more prevalent and common, but there's, there's balance and death. I have really found is I call it the great equalizer that, you know, when I look around and I start hating another human and I start feeling like, man, you know, they're getting this and that I start thinking, you know what, one day they're going to die and they might even die a painful death, which I don't wish on anyone. But someday, just like any other human, no matter how powerful they seem, how strong, how arrogant, conceited, evil, they're going to the same place everybody else is, which is the, you know, the casket, the urn, the bottom of a lake, wherever, you know, we all end up, you know, the same. And that's the great equalizer that nobody has figured out how to overcome that one Mm -hmm. and conquer that one, or even to make it any easier. Because we try to even make death itself easier, you know, with, with things. And yes, we have hospice and stuff like that, which is a huge help. But at the end of the day, we are all equally fucked at the end. And it's a beautiful, beautiful. horrible thing, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> because it's like at the end of the day, when I start thinking somebody's got something over me or even worse, I think I'm better than somebody else. I'm like, buddy, yes. you're going to rot and stink just like they do. That's yep. all you, you, you are no better. But then guess what? If I somehow put them in a position of superiority, they're going to rot too. We all rot. And I know that's morbid, but guess what? That's the life and that's the brain I have because I've seen right. morbid things and I was raised around a lot of suicidal talk and suicide mm-hmm. attempts in front of me. And so um, I think it's important to say I had, I had a, a parent attempt suicide in front of me at 11. And uh-huh. so I had to spend two days in captivity waiting for them to die because mm-hmm. they told me not to call anyone, answer the door or anything. They didn't die. They woke wow. up out of it and like nothing had happened. 
And so took me out to dinner and couldn't figure out why I wasn't hungry. And then had a nervous breakdown and ended up in the hospital later that day. But for several hours, they acted like nothing had happened. They showered mm-hmm. and it was just a horrific thing. But that was the moment that really made me realize just how vulnerable life is. But it also gave me this idea that people can't die because if she survived that, well, is death even real? You know, and so there was so much tied into that. And I know that's, I think it's important to share the reason because death has always been part of my trauma, mm-hmm. which is why I'm obsessed. And, and I find myself obsessed with the concept of death, not wanting it, but also seeing it as an eventual way, way, way down the road relief, but not now. Hell mm-hmm. no. I want to keep going. And, and I, and even though it hurts and it's scary and I have panic attacks and I sweat and I, and I get, you know, scared. I'm alive and I'm here. And you know what? A lot of other people feel like I do. They just ain't saying it. And I just love this opportunity. So again, thank you for letting me come here and be able to talk without having to be in a therapist's office, you know, getting, you know, you know, pretty much interrogated. Yeah. We need to talk about this. You're only as sick as your secrets and the stuff that we don't talk about, the stuff we don't even acknowledge to ourselves, the self-denial. That's the stuff that really holds us back. My experience in childhood was similar to yours. A lot of exper- a lot of a lot of awful uh, moments, um, and um, those continued through my teens into my twenties uh, with a parent. But at one point, right around the same age, I was kidnapped, and that is a prolonged experience of of, of uh, deep uncertainty, deep insecurity, and we're so small, so vulnerable at that age. Yours was directly related to death. Mine was directly related to not being strong enough to protect, to stop this incident, right? So that's how it manifests. Who becomes a Navy SEAL, the guy that needed protecting as a baby, you know, as a child? Who who becomes a, a rescuer, those who needed rescuing? It's They're directly attributable to things we've experienced in the past, but don't want to talk about it. God, I've been so humiliated trying to talk to a therapist, even the person that's asking me to talk about this stuff. And I say, I don't want to have mommy issues. Well, yeah. that's, that's what, that's, I'd be a pussy if I had mommy issues. Oh, no, Rob, you'd be a human being if you had issues <laughs> that you need to deal with that are affecting today. It's the most heroic thing, to put it bluntly. It's the most heroic thing to be honest about the painful past and work through it. Because until we do work through it, it's just holding us back. It's 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 chains on our on our shoulders and our on our waist, like the Christmas story guy. We don't need to drag the chains. Well, you know, I just want to say right now to anybody listening, you know, if you are that tough guy, you know, you are that guy who is, you know, too hard to break and, you know, solid. Just know that guys like me, when I see somebody like that open up and say, you know what, I hurt too. I'm scared too. It's, it connects in a way that they don't even understand. So if you're one of those folks out there who doesn't think that somebody's going to understand or you're going to be judged, open up. And if somebody does judge you, fuck them. There will be dudes out there who judge you. They're going to be there. You know, you know, the, the, the vet bros out there. Yeah, man, just keep it to yourself and have a beer. You know, <laughs> you know, guess what? Those guys are out there and you know what? You could choose to follow them and listen to what they have to say. Or you could listen to vets like Rob and I who are like, you know what? We do have mommy issues and it's okay to talk about them because guess what? When I received those mommy issues, I was just a little kid. Now, if I got mommy issues from being age 30 or 40 or 50, that's something else. But I was just a little kid and so were you. And to those who've been traumatized as kids, 
you're so much more likely to be traumatized as an adult because you've already got that those grooves and that pattern in your head to think in ways that are helpless and traumatized and poor me and helpless and the self-pity that goes with it and all that is natural you don't you're beating yourself up and being all hard like i have been and you know rob you talked about how you know when you drop something you're hard on yourself and i am getting to the point now where i've got this new calm voice inside of me this you know almost like the opposite of the the ego and it's just this cool voice that says hey man take a deep breath relax you're doing the best you can you're a human being yeah, you're going to mess up. Yeah, you just, you know, did X, Y, Z. But guess what? No one got hurt. Everything's okay. You're a little embarrassed, but move on. And so I don't have to play that hard, tough ass anymore. And, you know, there's so many folks out there, like you said, men that are trying to be tough. And, you know, um, if there's a time to be tough and there's a time to sit down and just open up and weep. And I'm not saying cry. I'm saying weep. There's a difference between crying and sniveling. And sitting down and weeping and truly grieving and feeling what you've been through because that is life and that is real. And, you know, if I can be a combat vet and feel feelings and, you know, watch a commercial with kittens in it and cry, <laughs> you, badass and go to war, you know, and I, and, and sometimes I forget, you know, I was a badass and went to war. I was an OIF one, not that any of the OIFs are better than the others, but one was the original one. We didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah. We didn't know what IEDs were. We had, I think we were the ones who came up with the term. That was the first time roadside bombs. What the hell? That's a new tactic. Yes. So we got to, you know, so sometimes I look back and I see the pictures and I'm like, holy shit, I really was a badass. I may have been scared. I may have been terrified, petrified, but you know what? When that car accident happened, I got out to render help. When they said, you're going to Iraq, I got on the plane. Yeah. And sometimes I'm so hard on myself because I was scared and all these feelings I felt. But guess what? Those feelings were feelings. And I still acted in a way that was contrary to those feelings and overcame them. So I uh, fear is a motherfucker, but it never goes away. You just learn coping mechanisms to breathe through it, work through it, however you get through it. You know, and I, you know, I'm working on my own coping mechanisms. I'll be learning as long as I can, God willing, because the growth mindset is to keep learning, to be adaptable, to be ready to change as appropriate. How do people find you? I'm, this is something that some people are going to want to keep talking about because I'm sure you've inspired some people with this conversation to say, okay, I'm finally ready. People that have been thinking about it for a while and saying, I'm finally ready to address maybe, okay, possibly think there's something underneath what I do that hurts me and makes me a fuck up daily. You know, why can't I stop screwing up? Well, the behaviors are following a belief pattern. How do they follow you and keep the conversation going? Right now, the only place, well, I'm active on my personal Facebook account. And then also, um, I recently started a page for my, uh, my travels because, uh, I figured there's folks out there who want to see somebody, you know, camping in weird places. That's the kind of the trend right now. So, um, you can find me, and it's all one word, uh, facebook.com forward slash the stealth squirrel. So the stealth squirrel, all one word, you know, and that's where you find me. That's where I post stuff. So if you message me there and just say, hey, you know, I heard you on the podcast talking about PTSD, obviously that's something where um, I'm more than happy to share and to um, provide encouragement or even guidance on receiving help. I do not give advice. Um, I simply share what I've done. And the only advice I ever give anybody is seek out professional help. Um, if you're a veteran, call the VA. Um, yes, you will hear horror stories from the VA. Some of them are from me, but guess what? Just like anything, 
there are some challenges, but there are also some great programs. And I would not be sitting here today if it wasn't for the VA providing me with some amazing help. And so I get help through there. I've gone through a couple of years of therapy, which has allowed me now to have some coping mechanisms and some skills that when the anxiety creeps up, the fear, the panic, the dread, the doom, the gloom, the chasing scary shit down rabbit holes, I have ways to come in. And yesterday I came up with the idea that like anxiety is like dominoes. Once you start them, the fuckers are going to go until you stop. All you have to do is just stop and pull one domino. In other words, you just pull that one scary thought because my rabbit hole will start with, okay, I just felt a twinge of anxiety. Why? Um, Because I'm going to die one day. Shit. Uh, And then I start getting real deep. And it's like, just pull that domino and then stick something else in there. Okay, let me think about my dog. Let me think about my cat. Let me think about what's my next camping trip and start a new series of dominoes. Because my mind is always dominoes. It is always a rabbit hole. There is no time I'm not in a rabbit hole. You hear how I talk. I start on one thing and boom. I keep going until somebody pulls the domino like, okay, Steve, shut up. But with anxiety, pull that domino. And I can't say it's it just, it doesn't always stop, but it sure does disrupt. Right. And if I can disrupt that panic attack, I have disrupted something really nasty. And that's what I, you know, a lot of mine is just keep the panic attacks away. Cause I can function through a lot of it. I just don't like breaking it. Sweat. Steve, this is powerful. The Stealth Squirrel at Facebook. I want people to find you. I've, I've known you as the squirrel for years and years, and you literally can jump as high as a squirrel, which is freaking amazing. Isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, proportionate to your body size. Steve, thank you so much for coming on today and for sharing this openly, honestly, courageously. It needs to be acknowledged. This is a very courageous path. It is, takes courage. I mean, we, I'd rather run into a battle than deal with relationship issues. Where do my relationship issues come from? Where do my trust issues with women come from? It goes way back to when I was uh, taught to have these feelings. And, 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 and you know, in my relationships, I, 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 I honor the women that I've dealt with because <laughs> they're dealing with the stuff I've dealt with too, you know? It's, it's just a pattern, a path. But like we said earlier, you're, you're benefiting those around you when you address this stuff. It's so important. Thank you for doing this to help some people move their own ball down the road when they're dealing with trauma or even acknowledging that they have to deal with trauma. It's a very, very important thing. That's the key. It's just understanding that you're human and that anxiety and all of these things are very human and that, you know, whenever you are traumatized, it just amplifies what everybody else is already feeling. People who haven't been traumatized, they do understand what it's like to be scared. You know, my wife has never been traumatized, um, which is, it makes a very unique situation. So yeah, but we all know what it's like to be scared. So thank you so much. Uh, It's been an absolute honor. And uh, I enjoy sharing my story because I think about it a lot. How can I not? And so not just wasting it in my head, but if it can give somebody else some traction and then get up that slippery slope today, so be it. Thank you. And to the listener, as always, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We're going to be talking about PTSD in the future, too, and other things we've touched on during this conversation. So, so tune in. This is called Beyond Your Limits. It's not about doing 10 more push-ups than you do today. You can do that on your own. You'll figure out how to do 10 more push-ups if that's your goal. But if you want to go beyond your limits, beyond self-limiting beliefs and behaviors, tune in to Beyond Your Limits and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois, the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. 
And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.